15, verse 10. Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There are lots of images in the New Testament and really throughout the Scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, that show us God's loving and protective care for His people. Uh, God, for example, is depicted as a father. In the Old Testament, He is depicted as the father of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus said that when we pray, we should pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, which is a reminder to us that God is not just the father of the nation in general, He is the father of us as individuals. And there can hardly be a more beautiful image than that image of God being a, a gentle and tender father toward His children. We have access to the King of the universe. There are other images, though. Uh, there's the very touching image that Jesus gave us when He was entering Jerusalem for the very last time. He was coming down that Palm Sunday route. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been to the Mount of Olives, and you've actually walked that zigzaggedy route that takes you down to the Kidron Valley and up toward the Golden Gate in the city of Jerusalem. And the story goes that when Jesus was making that final entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, there was a point where He stopped on the brow of the hill. There's a church there today called the Dominus Flevit. It means the Lord wept. And we're told that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and He wept for Jerusalem. And He said, How long I have desired to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Isn't that a wonderful image of God gathering us like chicks under a mother hen's wings? These are wonderful images of God's abiding and protective care for His people. And yet of all the images that are used in Scripture, the one that is perhaps the most familiar to us and the one that is used certainly more than any others is this image of God as a shepherd of His people. When you think of that, of course, there are a number of passages that is immediately spring to mind. The most obvious one, of course, would be the 23rd Psalm. That's recited to practically every funeral. The Lord is my shepherd. So we're very familiar with that. And the other image that probably pops to mind is Jesus' words in John chapter 10, where He Himself describes His own work as that of a shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. So those are two very obvious examples, but this image of God as the shepherd of His people, of the shepherd of His flock, this is common throughout Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 40, we're told that God is like a shepherd who tends His flock. Uh, interestingly enough, Isaiah chapter 40 is that chapter on the suffering servant. It's a picture of Christ and the suffering that He will endure for the sake of the world. And yet in that very context, He is referred to as a shepherd who keeps watch over His flock. In Hebrews chapter 13, we have that wonderful benediction. And now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. That's how Jesus is depicted in that great benediction in the epistle to the Hebrews. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter depicts Jesus as the chief shepherd, not just as the good shepherd or the great shepherd, but rather as the chief shepherd, implying 
that those who are his ministers, the members of the clergy, are called to be shepherds as well, but they are under-shepherds of the great shepherd, and they are answerable to him. So this image of God as a shepherd is a familiar one in both the Old and the New Testament. As I said, it is the most prevalent picture of God's abiding care and concern for his people. Well, here we have it again. Uh, It comes to us here in Matthew chapter 18, though, in the form of a parable. Now, if you've been with me in this study of Matthew, you've already been introduced to the parable some chapters earlier. We're told that as the crowds became indifferent toward Jesus and as there was a growing hostility on the part of the Jewish religious leaders toward the Lord and His work, Jesus began to change His nature in terms of teaching, His his approach to teaching changes. Uh, He is no longer going to be as straightforward as before. He is going to begin to teach the people almost exclusively in parables so that they would ever be hearing but never really understanding. The idea being that those who were spiritually minded would understand what he's saying, but those who were not spiritually minded would not have any charge to bring against him. So we've already been introduced to the parables, and we are reintroduced to them here in Matthew chapter 18. Now, there are a couple of things to remember about a parable. It's important to understand what a parable is not as well as what a parable is. Um, We said when we first looked at the parables that a parable is not the same thing as a fable. A parable is a story that is drawn from real life. Uh, The picture that the the Lord paints in His parables are true life images. In other words, it's something that His listeners would have been familiar with. A fable is not like that. Uh, A fable oftentimes has fantastic elements in it. The most classic example of a fable would be what? Aesop's fables, in which you have animals, for example, that talk. You're not going to find that in any of Jesus' parables. You're not going to have talking animals, any kind of fantastic elements like that. But while the parables are not fables, nor are they allegories, an allegory is a story in which nearly every aspect of the story has some sort of symbolic significance. Every aspect of the story is designed to teach some lesson. Uh, One of the best examples of this would be Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia are likewise allegorical. Uh, You know, Aslan is depicted as this great lion. Jesus is described in the Old Testament as the Lion of Judah. He appears as this lion in in the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and so forth. That is not what a parable is. A parable is a story that is drawn from true life or from a real-life setting, and it is designed to convey not many, but one or two major lessons. Now, there may be a number of other sub-points and things that we can draw out from that, but it's meant to convey really one lesson. Now, we're going to take a look at uh, not just this parable today, but uh, some others that are closely related to it from Luke's Gospel. Uh, A great example being the story of the prodigal son. We're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Now, what is the main gist of the story of the prodigal son? It's the story of a young man who goes astray, makes a mess of his life, recognizes he's made a mess of his life, and he returns to his father, and the father does what? Receives him back, welcomes him, rejoices over the son that had gone astray, has returned. Now, that is the basic gist of that story. And if you begin to get bogged down in the details, like 
What do the pigs represent? And what do the pods on which the pigs are feeding represent? You immediately get off track. So that's not what parables are designed to do. Parables are designed to relate to us one or two deep spiritual truth. The implications may be manifold, but it's meant to convey one or two basic messages. And we want to keep that in mind as we look at this particular parable. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is that Jesus tells this parable elsewhere. Uh, this is something that can come across as a great comfort to a pastor. You know, when you've been doing ministry for a long time, every now and then you find yourself repeating yourself. And uh, it's always a great comfort for me to recognize that Jesus sometimes repeated himself and told these stories over and over again, sometimes even repeated whole sermons. That's a challenge for a clergyman when you have to always come up with something new, especially if you end up doing four classes or four sermons or you have funerals and in one week you've got to come up with all of these different things to do and you have a short time to do it in. And so it's always a comfort to know that from time to time Jesus recycled these stories. Praise the Lord. And he does that here. Uh, he tells this same story or one very close to it in Luke chapter 15 verses 3 through 7. And then he tells this one here in Matthew chapter 18. What is interesting, however, is that while Jesus tells this parable twice, he tells it in two different contexts. And he tells it in response to two different situations. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells this parable in answer to the criticism that he is spending too much time with sinners. On that particular occasion, the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus and they were accusing him of eating with tax collectors and sinners, which they thought was absolutely inappropriate. And it's in response to that challenge that Jesus tells this parable of the lost sheep. In that context, what is he saying? He's basically saying that I came into the world to save the lost, like a shepherd goes in search of his sheep, but you can't do that unless you are what? Out there in the world. So it's appropriate for me to, to be here with the lost sheep. I can't find them if I'm not actually out there with them, searching diligently for them. Here, that's not the situation. Here, the way we find it in Matthew chapter 18, it is in response to the question that we find at the very beginning of the chapter. The chapter begins with these words, and at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 18, is Jesus' response to that particular question. So when Jesus tells the parable, it can apply to a number of different situations. In this particular one, it's an answer to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? As I said, it fits the context of this chapter very well. The disciples are concerned about what it means to be great. We said they were not great. They were in the presence of greatness, but they were not great. They were not born great. They had not had greatness thrust upon them, but they had a, a yearning, a desire to be great, great in this kingdom that was to come. And how did Jesus respond? Well, we said that Jesus answered their question um, in a host of ways, actually, one of the first things he says is that they're asking the wrong question. He said they're concerned about being great in the kingdom of God, when actually they should be concerned about even getting into the kingdom of God. 
Now, that was not the question they were asking, but that's the question that Jesus answers. He said, you're so concerned about being great, but that shows that you have the wrong attitude. You should be concerned about even getting into the kingdom of God, which would have prompted another question in the mind of the disciples. Well, then what do I have to do to get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, and what's more, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. Look at chapter 18, verse 2. And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of God. First thing Jesus tells them is they have to become like a child, and in order to become like a child, they have to turn. That's the language of conversion. So Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom and be great in the kingdom, first thing that has to happen to you is that you have to have a conversion experience, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of attitude that ultimately leads to a change of direction. And you have to humble yourself and become like a child. And we said children are teachable. Children are trusting. Children are not vying for position. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, you have to become like a little child. But then he goes on to say something else. And that's where we pick up today. He says, not only do you have to become like a little child, have a conversion and become humble, he says, but furthermore, you have to have a heart for the lost. And that's really what this parable of the lost sheep is all about. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to have a heart for those who are perishing. You have to yearning, a desire for those who are in danger. And that's really what this section is all about. Finally, he says, you have to be one who having a heart for others is also forgiving. That's what verses 15 and following are all about. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? And Jesus says, what? Seventy times seven. So that's what chapter 18 is really all about. All of chapter 18 is an attempt by Jesus to answer that question at the very beginning, what must I do to be great in the kingdom of God? Jesus says you have to turn and become like a little child. You have to have a yearning, a heart for those who are lost, and you have to be willing to forgive others as you yourself have been forgiven. That is is how you enter, that's how you become great in the kingdom of God. So that's really what the chapter's all about. These are not just isolated stories, they are all part of the whole. So it fits the context very well. Now, it begins with a somewhat difficult verse. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, little ones here is a reference to what? We said last week to the children, but the children represent what? True believers. And so what Jesus is basically saying, and he, said, he makes this point very clear, he says, don't cause one of the little ones to stumble, because if you do, it would be better than a millstone were wrapped around your neck and you were cast into the sea. At that point, Jesus, we said, was not talking about children. He was talking about true believers, true believers who have turned and become like little children. And so Jesus is saying it is a terrible thing to cause a child of God, to cause a believer to stumble or to sin. He said, woe to you if that is the case. 
So in verse 10, when he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, have a heart for those who have turned, have become Christians, are believers, are humbling themselves. Do not despise them. And then he goes on to say this, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And I say that's the troublesome verse, because what does that mean? Now, over the centuries, some have used this text as an argument for the idea of guardian angels, that we have a guardian angel that is assigned to us as individuals. How many of you remember that classic Hollywood film, It's a Wonderful Life? You know the story about George Bailey, who figures that he's a failure and he decides to take his own life. And He goes out on the bridge and he's about to throw himself in and he's contemplating all of this and all of a sudden he sees some man that jumps into the water ahead of him. And without thinking, he tears off his coat and he dives in and he rescues the man. And that's the scene immediately following. They're up there in the hut and they're drying off and this man's name is Clarence and um, Jimmy Stewart or George Bailey turns to him and he said, what were you doing in the water? And Clarence said, oh, I was in the water to save you. And George Bailey says, well, save me? I jumped in the water to save you. Who are you? And Clarence responds, I'm your guardian angel. And there's this great line. Jimmy Stewart looks him up and down and he said, yeah, that's about right. That's about the kind of guardian angel I'd get. Sometimes you feel like that. If we've got a guardian angel, he must be asleep at the switch. That's what we sometimes think. He's not doing a very good job, is he? At any rate, that's what this passage has been used to support this idea that there are guardian angels. It's a very nice idea. I must tell you, however, there is nothing in Scripture that indicates that you and I have an angel, a specific angel that has been assigned to you or to me. Which, you know, if everything's going great for you, may be a disappointment. On the other hand, if things are not going so great, and you do think that you've got Clarence as a guardian angel, uh, this can be a comfort to you. Uh, Let me say just a word or two about angels before we move on. I will say, angels are not the focus of this passage. So while we focus on this, it it really is not the intent that we should uh, spend too much time on angels. But let me just say something about it, because there seems to be a great interest in our day in the cult of angels. The Bible is very clear, angels exist. We speak of this in the liturgy. We speak of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Angels appear at dominant times, important times in the history of the Bible or in the history of of God's people. Uh, The angel Gabriel came, for example, to Mary with the good news that she was going to bear a son and that son would be the savior of the world. In the Old Testament, the archangel Michael is depicted as the one who is the head of God's legions of angels, his great heavenly host. So we do know that angels exist. Angels existed or appeared at the time of Jesus' resurrection, we're told. There were angels there at the tomb. Um, And so angels do exist. But angels are a whole different class of created being. Their primary purpose is to do God's bidding. And to do God's bidding in such a way that it is for the benefit of those who are God's people. So keep your finger there in Matthew and look at Hebrews chapter 1 for just a moment. They don't appear often in the scriptures, uh, often enough for us to take them seriously, but not so often that we should 
get fixated on them. But Hebrews provides us with at least a picture of what the angels do. If you want to know what an angel does on a regular basis, this gives us an idea. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Are they not all ministering spirits? Ministering spirits is just another word for angels. Are they not all ministering spirits or angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So the real role of angels is to do God's bidding, to carry His messages, but they serve God's purposes in helping those who are called to inherit eternal life. That, that's the real goal of an angel. So there are guardian angels, yes, that's part of their role, to watch over us, to assist us. Now, we don't see them, but they are there. But it's not necessarily the case that you have an angel that has been assigned to you personally. So that's what the role of angels are. Now, I just simply say that because here it is. We're told that we are not to look down on any of these little ones. Why? Because the angels themselves are looking to God. They have their eyes constantly fixed on God. Why? Because they are waiting for God to simply give the message at any time. They don't want to miss the commander-in-chief's orders. They are prepared to go and assist those who are to inherit salvation. So the point that Jesus is making here is that we should not look down on those who are believers the world should not look down on those who are believers because even the angels are looking to God for the word to go and assist those who are to inherit salvation. That's the idea behind this. But as I said, Jesus sort of just glosses over that and immediately he launches into this parable, this parable of the lost sheep. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. This, as I said, is a powerful image. The parable is short, but it has a lot of really important implications for you and for me as individual Christians. Now, let's just unpack it a little bit. The first thing to note is that when Jesus describes God as the shepherd, that implies that you and I are the what? We are the sheep. Now, you know that. We are the sheep. God is the shepherd. I will tell you this much. I have not spent any significant amount of time around sheep. But I've read about sheep. You can't be a pastor and not read about sheep. And I have had the opportunity from time to time to observe sheep in the wild. Uh, if you go to the Holy Land, for example, you, you see them everywhere. Uh, there's still lots of shepherds out there, uh, even down in the Judean wilderness. It's a wonder that they can find anything for the sheep to eat. But they have sheep out there, and they tend and watch over the flocks. And one of the things that you will immediately understand about sheep is that they are not bright animals. Uh, they really aren't. You know, we hear about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Goats are much more intelligent than sheep. Uh, this is something that I observed firsthand. There is a restaurant in a place uh, in Bethlehem called the Shepherd's Fields. It's the traditional site where the angels appeared to the shepherds and announced the birth of the Christ child. And there are still fields there, and there are still shepherds there, even today. 
And so we were eating in a restaurant one day, and it was an open-air restaurant, and there were fields right nearby, and there were a whole lot of sheep, and there was a shepherd out there. The flock was mixed. There were sheep and goats. And one of the things that I noticed about the goats is that when a goat eats, it will reach down with its mouth and pull up a tuft of grass, but then it will hold its head up while it chews and look all around conscious of the fact that there may be a predator and it needs to be ready to run or to defend itself. That's how a goat eats. A goat never eats with its head down. It will pull up the grass and it will look around. The sheep are the exact opposite. The sheep put their heads down and they'll pull at that tuft of grass and they'll just eat it. And then they'll wander over to the next tuft of grass and then over to the next tuft of grass. And that's how a sheep wanders astray. It never stops to take in its environment. It's not vigilant. It is concerned with one thing and one thing only, satisfying its stomach. And so it will wander from one place to the next, completely oblivious to the fact that it is wandering far afield of the rest of the flock, which is why the shepherd has to pull the sheep back in line. Rarely is that a problem with a goat, but it is certainly a problem with sheep. And the fact that God is depicted throughout the scriptures as a shepherd and his people as sheep. I want you to understand, you may have this wonderful romantic image of fluffy little white sheep. This is not meant to be a compliment. <laughs> the image here is of foolish, stupid animals that have a tendency to wander astray to their own peril, and had it not been for the vigilance of the shepherd, they would perish. So that's the image that is used here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The only reason we shall not want is why? Because the shepherd allows us to go into pastures that are green. It's because the shepherd leads us beside the still waters. It's not because we find these things on our own. So that's the image that you have here. We are the sheep, God is the shepherd. He is the one that watches over and cares for us. Now, I want you to just pause and think about that. God is saying that you and I are like those sheep. We have a tendency to wander far afield. And if we did not have a shepherd, we would perish. None of us, none of us is capable of defending ourselves and saving ourselves. That's another thing about sheep. They are completely defenseless. Uh, there is um, a condition in sheep that if a sheep ends up on its back, a sheep cannot right itself. In other words, once a sheep gets on its back, it can't right itself. So if it falls down in a crevice and ends up on its back, it hasn't the ability to turn itself completely over. My wife used to complain about this when she was pregnant, nine months pregnant. She said, I feel like a whale. I can't turn myself over. That's a sheep. It's called a cast-down sheep. And incidentally, if a cast-down sheep is like that, in that position of being on its back for too long, the certain gases in its body will build up and the sheep will die. So they really are defenseless. They're helpless creatures. And that's the way you and I are depicted in Scripture, as defenseless, helpless, foolish creatures that in and of ourselves will wander off to our own demise. And that is why... God is depicted as the shepherd, the one who brings the lost sheep back. Now, there are a number of things that this image of shepherding 
teaches us about God, not just about us. And the more important lessons are really about God rather than about us. The first lesson that we are taught is that because God is the shepherd, He cares for us individually. Look at chapter 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? God cares for us as individuals. And what is interesting is elsewhere in the scripture we're told he calls us each by name. This is something else that is remarkable about sheep. Um, I didn't see this in the Holy Land, but I did observe it in Ireland. When I was in Ireland for a month, I noticed that there were lots of shepherds. In fact, sometimes we would be going through the Dingle Peninsula on one of those gigantic coaches with 50 people, and there was hardly any space at all, and we'd come around a corner and there'd just be a whole flock of sheep just blocking the path. And you couldn't do anything about it. You could honk the horn, they weren't moving. Until the shepherd came out, and called them. Now when I say called them, he didn't necessarily call out to them, say, all right, you and you and you. What he would do is he had a certain whistle. And whatever his whistle was, when they heard their particular whistle, they immediately responded to the whistle. And this is the way it is in the Holy Land. When you want to get all of the shepherds, they would corral their sheep at night. There would be one great corral. They would get all the flocks, take them in there. In the morning, they needed to lead them out, but they were all mixed together. And so a shepherd had a particular whistle or click or sound that he would make. And the minute that the sheep heard their shepherd's voice or sound, they would follow him. It's really quite remarkable. So when we are told that God is our shepherd and we are the sheep, what it means is that God cares for us individually and He knows His sheep. He knows those sheep that belong to Him and the sheep know that they belong to Him because they hear His voice. You see this throughout Scripture that Jesus frequently called people by their names. He didn't call them in mass. He called them as individuals. We've already had an example of that here in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that Jesus came upon a tax collector's booth and there was a man there whose name was Matthew. And Jesus called him by name and said, follow me. And he left his tax collector's booth and he followed him. You have the example in Luke chapter 19, familiar story if you went to Sunday school of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a what? A wee little man. And when Jesus came through the town of Jericho, Zacchaeus, because he was a man of small stature, had to do what? Climb up in a sycamore tree, perched there in the branches. He saw Jesus riding by, and Jesus paused, looked up into the tree, and said what? Zacchaeus. See, you know your Sunday school stories. You never forget those songs, do you? Zacchaeus, you come down. He called him by name. He called him by name. The same was true at the time of the resurrection. We're told that Mary Magdalene went back to the tomb. The tomb was empty, the angels were gone, and she stood outside weeping. Weeping because she thought that somebody, she didn't know who, but somebody had come and taken the, the body of her Lord. And as she's weeping, this figure appears at her side. Initially, she thinks it's the gardener, doesn't she? And he says, why are you weeping? And she says, sir, they have taken the body of my Lord, and I don't know where they have taken him. If you know, tell me. At which point Jesus said to her, Mary. 
And the minute he said Mary, she recognized the shepherd's voice. And she responded, Rabboni, which means rabbi. Up to that point, she didn't recognize him. But when he spoke her name and she knew that voice, she responded. Listen, the scripture teaches that if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because the good shepherd has called you by name. When I left St. Helena's, um, the search committee, and I didn't have anything to do with the search committee, but when I left the search committee, you know, it's a dangerous thing to pick your own successor, although I think sometimes it's not a bad thing, but nevertheless, they asked me, they said, do you have any advice to give to the search committee as we leave? I said, yes. I said, whoever you interview, what you want, because you are the sheep of Christ's flock, whatever you, whoever you interview, what you want to be able to hear in that person's voice who's going to be your next shepherd, is the voice of the good shepherd. And that's the person you call. The one in whose voice you hear the voice of the good shepherd. So if you're a Christian, I want you to know God has called you by name. This is why I keep saying to people, it is not enough to know about God. You have to know God personally. It's about a personal relationship. God is not just up there. The whole message of the incarnation is that the God who created the heavens and the earth by the sheer power of his word, ex nihilo, out of nothingness, came down and took on human flesh that you and I might know him. The world is filled with people. I had some of them were professors in seminary who knew a great deal about God. They did not know him. The sheep are those who have heard the good shepherd's voice, and they have responded to it. If you're a Christian, take heart. That is what God has done with you. He knows you individually. He's not concerned with just the great mass of humanity. He is concerned with you as a man, as a woman, as an individual. Now, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, God can't be concerned with my little problems. Certainly, God has more important things to do. What this parable teaches us is that God seeks and saves the what? The lost sheep. That's why he came. He's not just concerned with the rolling of the spheres in their orbits. God is deeply concerned with you. And whatever your problems or troubles or worries or fears may be. Here's the second thing that this image of a shepherd and a sheep teaches us. It teaches us that God understands our weaknesses. As we've already pointed out, sheep are vulnerable. In one of the shepherd's psalms, Psalm 103, we're told that God understands us because he knows whereof we are made. He knows that we are but dust. God understands. Perhaps the most powerful image of this is in Hebrews chapter 4 where the author of that epistle says, for we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but he has been tempted in every way just as we are. The shepherd not only knows his sheep, he knows their weakness. That's why he's there, keeping watch over his flocks, because he understands that you and I are weak. He understands that we're frail. He understands that we are subject to sin and to temptation. He's not oblivious to that. He understands it. Here's the third thing that this teaches us. God seeks us when we go astray. 
He understands our weaknesses. He knows that we are subject to sin and that there will be those times when we will go astray. Let me tell you something. Even when you become a Christian, you still sin from time to time. Now, God begins within you a process of sanctification by means of which He begins to transform you into the very thing He's declared you to be, righteous. But that doesn't mean that at any point in this life you will ever achieve perfection. This is why Martin Luther said we are simul ustus et peccator. We are at the same time sinners and yet justified. When Paul said, you've heard me say this before, when Paul said, the very things I want to do I do not do and the very things I hate, these are the things that I do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Paul didn't say those words prior to his conversion. Paul was describing himself after conversion. The point that he was making is, I'm now more dissatisfied with my wretched behavior than I was before. And that's because the closer you get to the light, the more obvious your cracks, flaws, and blemishes will become. Isn't that true? I've always said that's the reason why we have romantic dinners by candlelight. <laughs> and not under the fluorescence. Because in that soft glow of the candlelight, everybody looks a little bit better. God understands our weaknesses, and furthermore, God has such a concern for us that He goes out and He seeks for us. You know, our attitude today is out of sight, out of mind. Well, what was that old song from the 70s? If you can't be with the one you love, well, love the one you're with. And that's the attitude of a lot of people. Well, if something gets lost, our attitude is hey, look. There are a hundred sheep in the fold, one wandered off, but the good news is, I still got 99. Right? Isn't that our attitude? Still got 99. That is not God's attitude at all. God's attitude is, I had a hundred, one has wandered off, and I have to have a hundred. And if that means leaving these 99 safely in the fold and going out and searching for that one, I will do that until the whole flock is together. If you're a Christian, you have been called by name. God knows your weaknesses. And if you have wandered off, I want you to know God is going to seek you. He is, in the words of George MacDonald, the hound of heaven. He is going to get your scent, and he is going to be relentless, and he is going to track you down until he catches you and brings you I said that Luke also tells these stories. But in Luke chapter 15, we have a whole series of parables about lost things, not just lost sheep, but other lost things. And I want you to notice a couple of things about that. Keep your finger there in Matthew and flip over to Luke for just a moment, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 begins with the story of the lost sheep, parable of the lost sheep, same parable that we're looking at here in Matthew. But the parable of the lost sheep is followed by the parable of the what? Beginning in verse 8, the lost coin. And the parable of the lost coin is followed by the story of the what? The prodigal son, which is really the story of a what? A lost son. In all three of these stories, something is lost. In the first one, it's a lost sheep. In the second one, it is a lost coin. And in the third one, it is a lost son. 
It's a lost son. But what's so powerful about the way that Luke puts it in all three of these stories is that while all three of those things are lost, none of those things, simply because they are lost, lose their value in the owner's sight. This is something that is made explicitly clear, and we're going to come back to it in a moment. But take a look at Luke chapter 15, verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until what? Until he finds it. See, he goes after that lost sheep and he doesn't stop looking for it until he what? Until he finds it. Now look at the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman having ten silver coins? Now, the image here is ten silver coins. They were oftentimes on a necklace. They represented that woman's dowry. It was her chance of getting married. And in the first century, that was what every woman wanted. Now, we live in a different age, and that's not what every woman wants today. But in the first century, it was extremely important for a woman to be married. And oftentimes, she could not get married without her dowry. So to lose one of those coins was to lose an opportunity. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until what? She finds it. And you even find this in the story of the prodigal son. We're told that when the prodigal son came to his senses, living down there with the pigs, longing for the pods on which the pigs were feeding, he finally says, I'm going to go home to my father. I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. As he's going home, he's beginning to wonder to himself, what kind of a reception am I going to receive? I've insulted my father. I've demanded my inheritance even before he dies, which in the first century was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. And now he's gone off with his inheritance, squandered it, made a mess of things, and he's coming back home. And what is his father going to do when he gets at the door? Is his father going to slam the door and let him freeze? What, what is his father going to do? And the story goes that while he was still a long way off, his father did what? went out and met him on the road. What that tells us is that that father, this is what Jesus is saying, that father stood at the window or in the doorway or on the front porch every single day looking for that boy to come back. And when he did, he went out to meet him. None of these things lost their value simply because they were lost. And if you are a sheep of Christ's fold and you have wandered astray, wandered off, far afield of the flock of God, maybe made a mess of your life like that prodigal son, I want you to know you have not lost your value in the sight of the good shepherd. He still loves you, he still values you, and he will search for you until he finds you and he brings you home. Let that be an encouragement to you. Because there are times when we wonder, how is God going to react once we turn around and come back? Here's the fourth thing we learn. God rejoices when we repent and return. God is happy when the sheep is brought home. When he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he rejoices. And the woman rejoices. And the father rejoices. 
You know, the Greeks used to say that God did not have emotion. The gods couldn't have emotions because if God had emotion or if any of the gods had emotions, then you and I, by our actions, could somehow manipulate them. And so the Greeks were very clear the gods had no passions, no emotions. That was not the case with the Christian God. The Christian God does have emotions. We're told that he weeps for those who have gone astray. He longs for them. He, like that woman who is not complete without all ten coins, is not satisfied unless all of his sheep are safely in the fold. God rejoices when we repent and we return. You will always receive welcome when you come back to the Lord. You know, actually, you will probably receive a better welcome from God when you've made a mess of your life and you turn around and you come back to Him than you will receive from His people. That's a sad commentary, and that's part of what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples here in Matthew chapter 18. That they need to be like that good shepherd who rejoices when he finds the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep because it's gone astray. He does what? He puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And oftentimes, God is far more exuberant and happy about our return than his own people are. Look again at Luke chapter 15 for a second, that parable of the prodigal son. You know, if the truth be known, this parable ought to be called the parable of two prodigal sons. Because the story's not just about the one boy, it's about his brother as well. We'll pick up the story at verse 20. Luke chapter 15. And the prodigal arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. All of which was true. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his finger, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and killed it, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. There's the lost son and has been found. And he began to do what? Celebrate. That's how God reacts when you and I come back. I wish God's people reacted in the same way. But look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, I just love the way it's translated here. Look. Look here. These many years have I served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, this is a great translation too, this son of yours, not when my brother, but this son of yours, who's no brother of mine, comes home, this son of yours who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf 
and give it to him. And he said, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, that all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The son sees his brother as just that son of yours. The father insists that he is actually your brother. Let me tell you something. When a Christian blows it, and they will do that from time to time, and they repent and return to the Lord, the Lord rejoices. The Lord rejoices that that which was lost has been found, that that which was dead is alive again. You and I as Christians are called to do the same thing. But oftentimes that's not the way it is. We keep a record of wrongs, don't we? And that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love keeps no record of wrongs, but we do. I remember what they did. See, that's how we respond. God responds in a very different way. So if you have gone astray, or if you have children that have been brought up to know the gospel, they've received the Lord, but they've wandered astray, I want you to know, be encouraged. God is going to seek them. He's going to save them. He's going to bring them home. Now, all of this, as I said, is in response to the question, who will be greatest in the kingdom of God? That's what the disciples want to know. I, I want to be great. I want to sit at your right hand, one at your left. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You want to get into the kingdom of God? Here's what is required of you. That you turn and become like a humble child. Realize that there is much that you need to learn, that you need to be trusting in your relationship with me. And then having become like a little child, you need to become like a good shepherd and have a heart and a compassion for those who are lost. To go out and diligently seek for them until you find them. I pointed out a couple of Wednesdays ago when I preached, I think it was last Wednesday, that the Christian ministry, my friends, is a call to a rescue mission. That's what you and I are called to be. When Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, James and John, come follow me, I will make you what? Fishers of men. When you catch fish, you catch fish to do what? Eat them. When you catch fish, you eat them. When you catch men, you do it to save them. We have been saved from something, from sin and death and from our own foolishness like sheep that have gone astray. But we have not only been saved from something, we have been saved for something, to have compassion and to go out and to seek and to save the lost. And those who have been saved but wander astray, it is our calling, it is our responsibility when they return home to forgive them, have compassion on them, and like our Father in heaven, rejoice at their return. Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, I asked the question last time we gathered, did the disciples get it? Well, they eventually got it, but they didn't get it yet. And we know that because later on in this chapter, and this is what we'll take a look at next week, Peter asked the question, okay, I got to forgive them. I get it. But how many times do I have to forgive him? 
That's the question. All right, I gotta, I gotta have compassion. They've wandered astray. I get that. I need to forgive them. But how many times? The rabbi said you had to forgive them three times. Forgive them once, forgive them. Forgive them twice, yes. Forgive them three times, yes. Forgive them four times, you don't have to forgive them a fourth time. That's what the rabbi said. So Peter comes thinking, well, I'm a Christian. And you know, I'm, I'm insightful. And so he comes, shall I forgive them seven times? And Jesus' response is, what? Seventy times seven. At which point he tells another parable. And that's the parable we'll take a look at next week. So you want to be great? Become like little children. Understand that you are a sheep. And if you've wandered astray, let me tell you something, you can come back and you will find that your heavenly Father rejoices at your return. You'll never find him ready to beat you or to cast you out or to slam the door. He will always welcome. He will rejoice that the one who is lost has been found. And if we're his followers, we will do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous parable of a good shepherd who is not satisfied until he goes out and having found all the sheep, bring them safely home. Grant us the grace to have a heart for the lost. We sometimes get so frustrated with our culture and what we see, but the reality is it's just because our culture is filled with people who are lost and they're trying to find their way. They are cast down sheep on their backs with no way to right themselves. But you command us as your under-shepherds to go out and to seek them and to save them and to bring them home. And when they do, grant us the grace to rejoice, not to be angry, not to be resentful, but to kill the fatted calf, to celebrate that the one who is dead is alive again. That is how we become great in your kingdom, Lord. Grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.